This evening I'd like to talk about wisdom. And in a way, the sequence of talks will really touch on some of the core themes of uh, the retreat. We have uh, these several uh, reference points, really. One is the uh, nature of the mind. And we're especially looking at the mind in terms of mindfulness as a tool and also wisdom, which is the capacity of understanding and, and clear seeing that I'll explore more. There's also the reference point of the heart. And we'll be looking at that for the next two talks. I'll be speaking tomorrow night and then Sean will be talking in two nights, um, both themes related in different ways to uh, to the heart, we might say. And then we also have this reference point of the body and of the importance of the body in our, in our practice, uh, both in the context of mindfulness uh, and in terms of the uh, yoga practice, in terms of really of the way that the heart can be more grounded and more connected through the very uh, specific techniques of having bringing the body in during the metta practice. I think that there's a way in which our practice points towards that integration of these different dimensions, what seem like different reference points. And my experience is as practice matures, we can see that these are more interpenetrating. So we can speak Ultimately, I think of the, of the wise heart or the um, heartfelt mindfulness. We can also uh, have all of those be embodied. So we can talk about embodied, the embodied wise heart <laughs> is really uh, what we're pointing to in a lot of what we're doing. And so, but we, it is helpful to look at each of those reference points uh, separately and to uh, build the capacity. And then over our time of practice, both here and really for the rest of our lives, we, we integrate those together. We make the connections and that can take some time. And it's, it's actually something deeply, deeply needed by this culture. You know, our culture really deeply needs to connect the mind, we might say, with the heart and with the body, particularly the earth body, which is getting uppity and saying too much neglect, you know, and starting to speak more loudly. So that, I think what we do this on the cushion here, but it also, I think, is really deeply, deeply relevant for the needs of the world. And maybe that can inspire us, you know, that, that vision. It, it does, it inspires me. So as I uh, mentioned last night, mindfulness isn't especially, or isn't necessarily wise. It's that interesting aspect that mindfulness, uh, I think when we practice it uh, in, uh, uh, with the guidance of looking at certain, in certain places, it tends to cultivate wisdom, it tends to lead to wisdom, but mindfulness in itself, uh, at its worst, uh, doesn't necessarily uh, appear wise. You know, I gave the example of walking down the middle of the street with a, perhaps a big truck coming our way, and it's possible to be extremely mindful in that, in that situation with exquisite mindfulness, you know, or I can be, you know, uh, again, I might be mindful without being wise. Let's say uh, my, I don't know, my partner is going through a really hard time and really needs me. And I say, I want to be mindful right now. We can, that could be, not necessarily, it could be quite wise to be mindful, but it could be, uh, uh, not incorporating wisdom. 
And so we need to, we need to also look at the nature of wisdom and, and um, really understand that our practice is also developing wisdom. Mindfulness is connected with wisdom, and as we'll see in several days, mindfulness first really is used to know the basic constituents of experience. Our bodily experiences, our thoughts, our emotions, the quality of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, which is called feeling tone. We are directed to study these aspects of experience. You know? So in the actual teachings of the Buddha, the Buddha doesn't say, folks, go out and be mindful. He says, be mindful in these ways. Focus here, look here. And, he, and there's some specific ways. So we first look really at the constituents of experience. And then the last, in the classical text, the last foundation of mindfulness, the first is the uh, foundation of the body. The second is that of the feeling tone, the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, which we'll bring in in, in a few days. The third could be said to be thoughts and emotions. And with the fourth and last foundation, we start looking more at what I would say are the patterns of experience. We sort of we have the training to be able to be with thoughts and emotions and bodily states and so forth. And then we step back and we look at the patterns. And that really starts to be the more explicit connection with wisdom. Because in particular, we look for those patterns which may lead to suffering and those patterns which may lead to freedom. And we study both of them and we learn how to transform or deconstruct the patterns which lead to suffering. So mindfulness in the classical teachings does lead to wisdom. But there also are ways to look at wisdom more directly. And I think in in uh, most of the world's uh, spiritual and philosophical traditions, wisdom is understood fairly similarly. Wisdom is the ability to see clearly, to somehow come to know both, as it were, reality in general and our own nature with clarity and depth. And the claim is often made that we don't use, that our common way of looking at things is not so clear and that we don't really know things so accurately. And then there's also in the understanding of wisdom, a sense of not just the clear seeing, but the connection of that to the question of how to live. It's really making the wisdom practical. How can it be made practical so that it's not a theory or not simply something in books, but it's a very live wisdom that can be lived, that can be embodied. I think that's really the understanding that we find across traditions. Um, and certainly in, in the Buddhist tradition as well. Related to that understanding of wisdom is a fairly radical claim. And that claim is, we live in delusion more than we like to admit. This is, we might say, bad news for the ego. The Tibetan teacher Trungpa Rinpoche once said, self-knowledge is 70% bad news. <laughs> and that, that sense, I think we can see partly what that means when we look to the way that, our whole, that uh, at times our experience is just wrapped up in a repetition of thoughts, going around in circles, associating, going from one thing to another, really just going off in all sorts of directions. And it can be quite humbling to sit with that for a while, right? To sit with that over hours. Humbling, maybe that's not the only word we would use. Frustrating, 
Maybe interesting. The Thai Buddhist teacher, Buddhadasa, was once asked what he thought about Western civilization. And his answer, lost in thought. And every time I, I think of that, I also think of Gandhi was asked the same question. What do you think of Western civilization? And his answer was, it would be a good idea. <laughs> And there's a way, there's a, there's a term in the Buddhist tradition that uh, unpacks that sense of being lost in thought or the way that one of the mechanisms of delusion is this way that we're continually caught in repetitive thinking. And there's a term in, in the uh, teachings of the Buddha called uh, papancha. How many people know the term papancha? Several of you. And papancha is one of those words, I think, it, what's it called? Onomato, I'm kind of butchering it. Onomato poetic, poetic, something. You know what it's called? Yeah. What is it? Onomatopoeia. I think, I think there's another syllable or two, but I'm, I'm not sure. But the onomatopoeia. Okay, we'll, we'll assume that's correct. And um, it's really the, the, the um, those kind of words means they sound like what they mean. Papancha sounds like, I don't know, a parrot going off and chattering, right? Papancha, papancha, papancha. <laughs> and the, the usual translation is conceptual prolif proliferation. Has anyone experienced conceptual proliferation in the last two days? So just about, just about 20% of the group here are telling the truth. <laughs> so, um, and it's something that we can look at, that, that uh, so many of those uh, thoughts just go on and we're instructed, as I was saying yesterday, to look more at direct experience and to see the ways that the thoughts can form this whole bubble, like a cartoon almost, that takes us away sometimes from the directness of experience and really the directness of life. As we practice, we may have a sense of the way that there is a kind of lack of accurate seeing of our experience in a way that when we develop more presence, mindfulness, clarity, we see the world freshly. And sometimes that appears in the concentrated mind. We see, there, we see the trees and the landscape with a certain sparkle when the mind gets quiet. We can notice how, the, um, how there's a kind of directness of experience at times. Some of you may know this famous uh, part of a poem by William Blake, who talks about the need to cleanse the doors of perception, which is what we're doing here. He says, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to human beings as it is, infinite. For humans have, cleansed themselves, have closed themselves up till they see all things through narrow chinks of their cavern. Shantideva, a Mahayana teacher from the eighth century said it this way, this entire world is disturbed with insanity due to the exertions of those who are confused about themselves. This entire world is disturbed with insanity due to the due to the exertions of those who are confused about themselves. And so we, we look into that. We study, really, whether that seems accurate. You know? And the whole of the quest for wisdom isn't so much just accepting anything, really, on faith or because um, someone says it or it's in some book or because I say it or because your mother says it. 
the whole emphasis of our practice is to cultivate wisdom by seeing for ourselves, by really looking directly. But there also is some guidance. It says, look in this direction. Look into the nature of conceptual proliferation. See if there is some way that we're really not seeing ourselves and the world in an optimal way. And again, a radical claim, humbling in certain, in certain ways. It's very interesting that in the, in the Buddha's tradition, uh, the Buddha really emphasized seeing for oneself. There's a very famous text that some of you probably know called the Kalama Sutta, which is really means the discourse to the Kalamas. And the Kalamas were a people who lived uh, on a crossroads in ancient India. I like to think of it as being something like the Bay Area. <laughs> because they had just all these spiritual teachers coming through. You know, just like the Bay Area. You, you could have, instead of coming here, you could have chosen between like 189 different events, right? You could have, you know, balanced your chakras. You could have, <laughs> you could have uh, learned ecstatic dance. You could have done, you know, had your choice of 43 Buddhist seminars or 27 workshops from other traditions, you know. You could have gone on a spiritual wilderness hike. I, I'm not trying to set up the idea. Some of you may be thinking, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and the, 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 the Kalamas were in a, a town called uh, Kesaputa, which was very much like that. They had, it was a crossroads, so they had teachers coming through all the time. For them, this was confusing because you'd have one teacher come after another and they'd be saying different things and they'd be making different claims and a lot of them were bad-mouthing the other spiritual teachers, which doesn't happen much in the Bay Area, luckily. That was a joke. <laughs> and so um, uh, when the Buddha came through Kesaputa, they asked him, why should we believe you? Who are you? This is what they said. There are some priests and contemplatives who come to Kesaputa. They expound and glorify their own doctrines, but as for the doctrines of others, they deprecate them, revile them, show contempt for them, and disparage them. And then other priests and contemplatives come. They expound and glorify their own doctrines, but as for the doctrines of others, they deprecate them, revile them, show contempt for them, and disparage them. They leave us absolutely uncertain and in doubt which of these venerable priests and contemplatives are speaking the truth and which ones are lying. Some of us may have had that kind of experience. And here is the Buddha's answer. It's quite a powerful answer. This is 25, 2600 years ago. Yes, Kalamas, it is proper that you have doubt, that you have perplexity, perplexity, for a doubt has arisen in a matter which is doubtful. And then he goes on to tell them how they should try to find out what's true, basically by looking at their own experience and not even believing him. Now look, you Kalamas, do not let be led by reports or tradition or hearsay. It's very interesting. He's saying, don't put your stock ultimately on tradition. Pretty radical 2,600 years ago. Be not led by the authority of religious text, nor by, mere, nor by mere logic or inference, nor by considering appearances, nor by the delight in speculative opinions, nor by seeming possibilities, nor by the idea, this is our teacher. So ultimately he's saying, don't even believe anything I say on faith alone. But O Kalamas, when you know for yourselves that certain things are skillful or unskillful, wrong or helpful, then give them up. Give up the unwholesome ones. 
And when you know for yourselves that certain things are wholesome and good, then accept them and follow them. Let me read that last part again. When you know for yourselves that certain things are unwholesome and wrong and bad, then give them up. And when you know for yourselves that certain things are wholesome and good, then accept them and follow them. That's really what I think we're inviting here. It's that the, the wisdom that stays is the wisdom that comes from knowing our own experience deeply. And it's not something to be adopted as an opinion or a creed or a dogma, but something to be deeply investigated and really internalized. And that's very freeing in a way. It's really a very um, practical approach to wisdom. In the Buddhist tradition, as well as in other traditions, uh, but particularly in the Buddhist tradition, the nature of how we're deluded and the flip side, how we might become wise, is unpacked in a number of different ways. One of the most fundamental ways to unpack the nature of delusion and hence the nature of wisdom is to focus on three aspects of experience that we usually don't see very carefully, don't see very well. The first is suffering and the roots of suffering. The second is the fact that things are impermanent and changing. And the third is that everything in a way is interdependent. That there's not really ultimately such a thing as a separate self. Sometimes this is unpacked through talking about emptiness, in, especially in uh, Mahayana traditions. It's really this kind of radical interdependence which puts in question many of, our, many of our views about ourselves as fundamentally separate. And it points to more of a sense of interconnection as a deeper reality. And so I want to unpack really those three aspects, really the, I think the first two in the remainder of the evening. And then I think in several nights from now, I'll look into that last aspect of wisdom, uh, interdependence, which, which in some ways is the, can be quite uh, complicated and sometimes uh, hard to understand. So the first aspect of experience that, that it's said we don't see clearly and thus remain in a kind of delusion is that we don't see the nature of suffering clearly, the roots of suffering and how to transform suffering. And this is unpacked particularly in a very fundamental teaching called the Four Truths, which I imagine most of you have heard uh, maybe multiple times. And it's really a teaching about the nature of suffering, the roots of suffering, that is the cause of suffering, the possibility of freedom from suffering, and the roots of that freedom, the practical path. So we might say that this teaching is about suffering and its roots, and freedom in its roots. And it's a very basic teaching that was um, actually uh, in its form adopted from the medical diagnosis system of that time in India. And sometimes the Buddha was actually called the physician. You know, it was, so it has a very simple logic to it. It's like, what's the problem? What's the cause of the problem? What's the solution or the way to get away from the problem? And how do, we, how do we get there? How do we get to the solution? And that was used for medical diagnosis. And the, the, the Buddha used that very same model in his, un, in his understanding of the nature of suffering and the nature of um, freedom. He expressed it as four, as four truths. And it's really probably the fundamental teaching there. And, and when if there's one teaching 
about wisdom, it's that one. You know, when, when wisdom gets unpacked in its simplest form in the Buddhist tradition, it gets unpacked in terms of this teaching of the four truths. And it was actually the subject of the first discourse that the Buddha gave after awakening. And so what is that, what is that teaching? And it's really a fundamental one. It first of all really invites us to look at suffering. And it's helpful in looking at the nature of suffering to use some precision of language. And there's a very fundamental distinction that we could make that's really crucial for practice between pain on the one hand and suffering. That pain is the presence, we might say, of the unpleasant. It's the presence of unpleasant physical sensations, difficult or unpleasant emotions, We may have uh, emotional pain. We may have the pain that comes from being treated unfairly or unjustly. And much of that is simply given. Suffering is taken to be the reaction to that pain, the reactivity around the unpleasant. And one of the ways that that is most clearly spoken about is in uh, a teaching called the Teaching of the Two Arrows, which is one of my favorite teachings. And I, I, I like to give it in many of my talks, but you will only hear it once. And it's, it's a powerful and very simple teaching. And I think it's a very compact version of the teaching of the, of the nature of suffering and the nature of freedom. It goes like this. In the text, the Buddha asked his practitioners, everyone experiences the unpleasant. You might say everyone experiences his pain. What distinguishes a non-practitioner from a practitioner? They both experience the unpleasant. You know, for example, the Buddha himself uh, in his older age, had a bad back. He also sometimes had headaches. I'm really glad that that didn't get kind of glossed out of the, the text, right? And so sometimes he would be at a Dharma talk for an evening. He would say to Ananda, Ananda, my headache, my headache is pretty bad. Can you give the talk tonight? And that happened. There's, it's in the text. And so the unpleasant is simply a feature of human experience. And everyone experiences it. The Buddha said this is like being shot by an arrow. And he called this the first arrow. It's being like being shot by the first arrow, the arrow of pain. And again, we have pain, can have physical pain, emotional pain, the pain of injustice and so forth. The pain related to our relationships and to could be our pain in relationship to the world and so forth. And he said, both the non-practitioner and the practitioner are shot by the first arrow. What distinguishes the two is that the non-practitioner, because of being shot by the first arrow, shoots a second arrow, we might say, either at oneself or at another. And the non-practitioner, or the practitioner, I should say, learns not to do that, or learns to do that less. So that shooting of the second arrow, we could call, it, we could say, is the reactivity. It's when I sit with an unpleasant physical sensation, can I just sit with it with mindfulness and bear attention? Or do I react and tense? The tensing around the unpleasant is shooting the second arrow. 
when I have a difficult emotion, when I'm feeling, uh, here in the retreat maybe, I'm feeling uh, like somewhat distressed because my meditation isn't what it is, what I think it should be, and I start blaming myself. That's the second arrow. It's not just being with the raw experience. It's somehow um, reacting, you know? And I've heard doctors say that 80 or 90% of what people, their patients experience as pain is not the original stimulus, but it's the reactions. It's the contracting, the tensing, and that's why uh, meditation can be so valuable in medical settings, right? That it's really powerful in that way. And um, when, when I have an interaction with a friend and it doesn't go very well and I brood for the next three days, that's the second arrow. When someone does something I don't like and I engage in a vendetta with that person, that's the second arrow. So you can see that a lot of the conflicts in the world are people or countries shooting second arrows at each other. Very much because I have received pain and somehow I think that reacting, contracting, shooting the second arrow will help. And the teaching is that it actually keeps us in cycles of pain, cycles of reactivity. That second arrow, we might say, is suffering. It's the reaction. And it's sometimes said that pain is a given of human experience, but suffering is optional. And so we learn how to explore that, you know, this, this teaching. We learn, for example, how to be with the unpleasant without shooting the second arrow. We study how we shoot the second arrow. So it's a deep teaching, you know, but here we train in not shooting the second arrow. And in the actual teaching, we're asked really to open up to those moments of suffering, to study how we contract to be with it. I notice myself suffering, can I open to it? And actually, suffering, I would say, is almost defined in a way as reactivity in a way which points to the cause of suffering. Classically, the cause of suffering is taken to be some kind of craving or some kind of grasping after something. And it's really sort of the flip side of compulsive aversion. I, I would say more um, generally that that root of suffering is reactivity. Reactivity understood in two main ways, as the reacting by grabbing hold of it, I want it, and the reactions of pushing it away, contracting, and so forth. And what we're invited to do is to look at those phenomena, to open up, to be able to open up when there's something unpleasant, and also to study when we're grabbing hold, because it's actually taken that both of those phenomena are the roots of suffering. Really, reactivity is um, the root of suffering in, in these two forms. And so we, when a moment of unpleasant comes and we notice ourselves contracting or suffering, it's something to look at. The third truth, as it were, is the truth of the possibility of overcoming suffering. It's really the possibility of being present with experience without reactivity. And we experience that, I think everyone has experienced that at different moments. And so it's, it's really saying that the deeper, the deeper peace is not from grabbing hold compulsively of what we think we want, but it's actually a quality of peace which can be present with whatever occurs in our experience. It's really a sense of equanimity and ability to be balanced 
and at peace no matter what's happening. And that in that peace is a kind of wisdom that can see things more clearly as they are. The fourth truth of the roots of that kind of peace in the Buddhist tradition is taken to be the Eightfold Path, which is really the practical steps that we can take to uh, lead towards that peace, that, that um, working through the reactivity that's there. I won't say so much about that practical path. I think maybe talk about that further towards the end of the retreat. But it's, it's a combined practical path where we develop ethical integrity, where we deepen in wisdom, and where we deepen in meditative tools that help us. Because we need that mindfulness and concentration to be able to see how we, how we suffer how our minds work to be confused about that. So this first area that we are urged to draw attention to is this phenomena of pain and suffering and the roots of it, and the possibility of being with both the pleasant and the unpleasant without compulsively being pushed and pulled. Doesn't mean we don't make choices. It doesn't mean we give up all preferences. But we look to the compulsive quality of our grabbing hold and our pushing away. That's why it's important in the context of the retreat that we study over and over again the tendencies to contract around a knee pain, or around an emotion, or around the way the meditation is going. And we learn the dynamics. We really study, in a sense, these four truths in our own experience. And we study the, the logic and the dynamics of that. The second, the second area that I want to mention, and the last one I'm going to mention tonight, that is also an aspect of wisdom that we normally don't see so clearly, is that of impermanence, the changing nature of things. So part of the cultivation of wisdom is to see how things arise and pass away, and to see that more clearly than we usually do. And that can occur in a number of different ways, both on a more gross and a more subtle level. One of the great chants in the tradition is a chant about impermanence. And when I've been in Thailand, this would often be chanted you know, uh, when there were gatherings. And perhaps we can do it one of these evenings. Anicca Watasankara. Upatawa yadamino, upakitawa niruchanti, desang upasamo suko. It's pointing to the centrality of understanding impermanence. The, the translation is all composite things are impermanent. They arise and pass away, that is their nature. They come into being and pass away. To know this deeply, is to contact the greatest happiness. Of course, following the talk to the Kalamas, don't just take that for granted. Don't just, because someone said it, someone chanted it, because it's in a foreign language doesn't mean it's more true. <laughs> but we're invited to study it, really. It's really the, the invitation here. And on, on one level, I'll talk both about the grosser level and the more subtle level of impermanence. On a grosser level, intellectually, no one would probably disagree with impermanence. 
Does anyone think that things are not changing? Okay, no takers, so immediately. <laughs> and so uh, we can see that things are changing uh, all the time. We can look at the, the, the weather, the seasons, you know. Change is often very slow, but we can see the change in our own minds, in our own development, in our own aging process. And we can look at that and we can know that uh, but we, we, don't, we often don't look so carefully at that. You know, probably many of us don't look so carefully at impermanence in the sense that not just that the world is impermanent or the seasons or the weather, but guess what? <laughs> I, I am impermanent. You know, humans are this interesting species that's aware of its own... Um, basically certain death. Sorry, sorry to say that, quite so bluntly. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting that we have that consciousness as human beings, and it's often suggested that that can be deepened, that actually the remembrance of death can, be, can give energy we're growing more wise. And I think, and I know many of you, whether it's being with the loss of someone close to you or developing an illness, can really uh, have the potential to spark our practice. And I know for myself, I had a very close friend die just about two months ago. And it really does something. I think we, I think, I think uh, most of us, if not all of us, have had that experience. And it can really make us ask what really matters in the light of death. And so it's a very common reflection to, to remember death. In the Tibetan tradition, right at the beginning of practice, there's a reflection which is done repeatedly for as long as one is doing um, the first stage of practice in which one is invited to reflect first on the rarity and preciousness of human life, secondly on the fact of impermanence and death, third on the fact that our acts have consequences, and fourth basically that, if I could paraphrase it, that suffering is really lousy. And we're asked to reflect on that very much as a spur to practice. And again, many, many traditions, one looks at impermanence and death on this grosser level as a way of asking, what do I really want? What really matters? And it's taken that that can really deepen our practice when it's done in a skillful way. And then as we practice more deeply, we can also see the more subtle dimension of impermanence. And it's really an invitation as we practice uh, more and more to be aware of how things change. Sometimes we can do a very simple practice of just sitting and focusing on change in our experience, just to sit there and say, and watch where our attention goes to my knee or to my head or to outside, or I can watch the changing nature of the breath and just focus there. And it's taken that the deepening sense of impermanence can be very, very central to our practice. In the classical teachings of the Buddha, the main reason that impermanence is emphasized is that it leads us not to try to grab hold of things quite so much. When we see that everything's changing, and that things arise and pass away, we may get more interested in developing this wisdom and this deep peace in contact with the whole process. You know, just as we may not fight, let's say, aging so much. In this culture, there's a lot of denial of aging, right? It's really a denial of impermanence, you know, and it's very widespread. 
Um, and we can see the ways that we actually are in conflict with the changing nature of things. We don't want some things to change, right? And we're asked to study that because when we study it more, it can help us, as it were, to go more with the flow, to not grab hold so much. That's really the practice. And as it deepens, it's possible to have a sense of the very almost microscopic, moment-to-moment -moment nature of change every moment in a way in which we can see more directly that the kind of solidity of our bodies and our minds is a kind of construction. We can reflect on that when we actually realize that children don't have that same sense of solidity. They have to learn it. You know, we have to learn that sense of solidity as growing human beings. Children, the philosopher William James said, live in a buzzing, booming confusion. And we have to learn to create this, what appears like a solid world. It's not there for children. It's not, as it were, as it is, it's constructed. We live in a kind of construction. And when we meditate, we become more aware of that construction. And it can be disorienting, but as we stay more with it, we learn that it actually is a doorway to compassion and to, to clarity. So that's a horizon of our practice. We can, we can move in that direction. I just want to end with a few further comments that really make a, start to make a connection with the nature of wisdom and its relationship to the heart. You know, I started by connecting wisdom to mindfulness. And there's also a way in which our wisdom has to be really connected with the heart. That we can um, quite easily have the wisdom be more cold and analytical, sometimes overly intellectual. I went to graduate school in philosophy. I saw that. Has anyone taken a philosophy course? I saw that, you know, and it was, uh, was actually kind of heartbreaking for me as a young student of, I, I thought, practical wisdom, and I saw it being turned into intellectual games. It was, it was confusing and hard and, and quite painful sometimes. And we know that the deeper wisdom is also, as I was saying earlier, the wisdom of the heart. And we'll want to make that connection. We'll make that connection over the next few um, evenings in the talks. In the Buddhist tradition, it's said that the deepest teaching is about the connection of wisdom and compassion. That wisdom to be mature has to be connected with compassion. Sometimes said that the teachings are like a bird with two wings, the wing of wisdom and the wing of compassion. And both have to be developed. And I actually want to supplement that by something. Are you hearing an echo a little bit? Hmm. I'll bring this down. I want to um, supplement that by something that I learned from a Vietnamese friend of mine um, named uh, Minduk, who's a, a monk who, I, who I've known and worked with for a lot of years. And he was, um, he said that in the 1930s and 40s in Vietnam, as the, you know, as the conflict and the war and the struggle against first against the French was intensifying, the Vietnamese Buddhist said, We've had wisdom and compassion for 1,500 years, 1,000 years. It's not enough. And they added a third leg, which was wisdom, compassion, and courage. Mm -hmm. The ability to have that strength of heart in difficult circumstances to connect with wisdom and compassion. I like to think of that as really filling out a certain uh, Threesome, that's really the theme of the retreat. Wisdom, we could say, is the mind. Compassion is the heart. And courage is really the body. It's the ability to be present and to do what's necessary 
through our actions, which is really the body present in the world. And I, that has really stayed with me since I learned that from Mindok. It's been very powerful for me to think of those three together, you know, to really have those uh, be together. And this is this cultivation of wisdom connects with mindfulness, it connects with the heart, it connects with the body. And the last thing I want to say is that it takes time. And it takes this continual looking at our experience. That's really our methodology here. We continually look at our experience. And it's taken that out of that looking, we become wiser. Our hearts get bigger. And I think we also develop more courage. I just want to end with a, a poem by um, Pablo Neruda from uh, Chile, um, which is about wisdom. And I'll, I'll finish with this. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. I'll read that one more time. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. Let's just sit on the rim of your cushion for about a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.